SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the On The Tape Podcast. Guy Adami, always joined by EY from SoFi. Dan Nathan, traveling today. Elizabeth, how are you? I am good. These are the ones where I usually post on Twitter something like, just the two of us. Yes, Great song. Gonna do it today. Can I tell you something? You do have dulcet tones. I think if this SoFi thing doesn't work out, maybe you want to ask Anthony if you can moonlight at one of those like jazz lounges. But that's not for this show. Karaoke singer. It's funny you (laughs) mentioned that, but we do karaoke from time to time on Fast Money. But again, not for this show. Last week, I thought it was a fascinating week. A lot of twists and turns. A lot of again, our world. The moves in the bond market are staggering. And let's start there. What is it telling you? I know both you and I have thought that the re-steepening of the yield curve was going to be the problem. And we've talked about it. You talk about an 80 basis points or so re-steepening. Seemingly nobody talking about it. Maybe going from, I don't know, let's call it 110 to 30 just to round up, but that's not exactly right. But you know my point. What is that telling you? Because you've been talking about this for quite some time. I think the people who are talking about it are talking about it as if it's a positive signal because it's happening due to the tenure going up. And that's usually a signal that the economy is strong. And to be fair, economic data has been decently strong. It's been solid. It's surprised to the upside in different ways that I don't think either of us expected for sure. But the re-steepening is still an issue. So one thing that I think was really interesting about last week was gold, best week since I believe the regional bank crisis and maybe second best week since March of 2020. So something is afoot in the market where you've got some of that defensive stuff really coming back and being stronger, especially at a time when you've seen yields go up so much, you've got a stronger dollar over the last year. Gold usually wouldn't react in this particular manner. So there's clearly some consternation in the market. I still think there's something happening under the surface that we just don't know about yet, whether that's some hedge fund, some big levered player that's unloading, somebody's unloading, and then algos have gotten triggered 
last week, obviously, we saw that bond auction that was pretty stinky uh, and Elgos got triggered on the other side of it. So I think that there is fragility in some of this. And obviously, we're not seeing quite as many by the dippers as we've seen in prior drawdowns. So nothing super alarming at this point, but I do feel like the tone has shifted. Agreed. Nothing super alarming, but it's something to watch. And you mentioned gold, so let's just talk about it for a second. And what I've said for a while, and actually I think there was an article by one of the strategists out there, we'll put it in the show notes if I can find it, but effectively saying some of the things that we've been saying for a while, that central banks who bought a record amount of gold in 2022, some 1,221 tons, around $70 billion worth of gold, are on pace to do similar this year. And what I've been saying is, and I believe this, it's not just me flapping my gums, they're hedging their own ineptitude. And there was a note out, again, last week or the week before, suggesting very similar. So when you see central banks buying gold, they clearly are on to something. Now, until recently, it hasn't manifested itself in the price, but it's starting to now. And one thing I say all the time, at least over the last year or so, is although everybody might be bullish of gold, Nobody's long of gold. And you say, what does that mean? It means our world, the institutions, the hedge funds, they have not bought gold yet. Gold really isn't on their radar screen. They might be aware of what's going on, but it's all system-based and their systems all get triggered effectively the same time. And my sense is those systems will get triggered if and when we go through the all-time high, which we're getting closer to. And then everybody gets in the door at once. The problem, of course, is The gold market, Liz, is not the equity market. The amount of dollars are going to flow in, I think, the gold market's not be able to withstand that. And something's going to break, I think, on the way up. So it's going to be interesting to see. And the other thing you talked about in terms of the bond market and the auction, that treasury auction last week was an unmitigated disaster. And one of the things that we've talked about that I don't think enough people really are taking into consideration, and I want your thoughts, it's not so much that the economy is doing better, although I will grudgingly submit that the economy is a lot more stubborn and a lot more resilient than I thought it would be at this point. With that said, the move in the bond market has really been predicated on supply and demand, and the market is demanding a higher yield to buy our debt. And when you think about what's going on out there, who is the buyer of last resort? Clearly, what's going on in Japan, they are going to try to support their currency. Good luck with that. But in order to do that, they need to raise dollars. How do they do that? Probably by selling treasuries. So that buyer is now a seller. And the Fed, which had historically been a buyer, they're not in the equation as well. So that's a bit of a problem here. And obviously, we know what's going on with China-US relations. I'm sure it would behoove them to see things go pear-shaped here. So rates going higher, although the economy is strong, is really happening for more nefarious reasons. Thoughts on that? Actually, I would compare this almost to the oil market. So we've talked about this before. Oil prices rising because supply has been constrained, not because demand has gotten stronger. That's a completely different message. If demand is getting stronger, the economy is getting stronger, then that's more of a positive signal. If oil prices are going up because we just took supply off the market, that's not necessarily a positive signal. And it goes to show how sensitive we are to certain regions of the world and the supply that's out there. Now, when you think about the treasury market, I talked about this in a note a few weeks ago, the idea that our budget has not been balanced for a long time. We're running deficits. In order to cover our costs, we have to issue treasuries. It becomes this circular loop of negativity, right? We've got interest costs that have gone up, so then we have more obligations. In order to cover those obligations, we have to borrow more, so we just keep issuing more treasuries. The buyers, as you mentioned, the big buyers that were out there that had been, I think, taken for granted, we took for granted that there was so much appetite internationally for treasuries, 
those have all but left the room. So not as much appetite out there, particularly from the international landscape. Now you've got continued supply, as we saw this auction last week, terrible. You've got continued supply that's going to drive yields up because there's just not appetite. So that supply-demand imbalance is, I think, going to continue to weigh on yields in the sense of raise yields. But yields are not rising necessarily only because the economy is stronger. And the other thing that I would say, we talk about unemployment so much, and so far it has not shown major cracks, but here's the thing about unemployment, and this is where you're going to get yields moving very quickly in the opposite direction, I think. The thing about unemployment and the jobs market is that once it starts to show a crack, it goes fast. That first little crack, that first uptick in the unemployment rate, and then it flies and you can't catch it. So that's something that I want people to be cognizant of just because it's not the situation where you're looking at the data and saying, oh, it's stubborn, it's strong, everything's going to be fine. Again, look at a long-term chart of the unemployment rate. It gets down to a low before it spikes back up. We just don't know when that spike will go back up. And I think it's hard to imagine that we go down to a low in the unemployment rate and then chug along at a low for a long period of time because of where we are in the rest of the economy. Now, the pushback on that will be, and I'll play that role right now. Wait a second. That's exactly what the market wants. They want to see higher unemployment because that would suggest the job is being done for the Federal Reserve. And maybe early next year or sometime by mid next year, there will be cutting rates. So we will look past this rise of unemployment and say, you know, the end of the sort of the light at the end of the tunnel is coming and we see it and we're going to get ahead of it. And bad news in the form of the unemployment rate going higher is good news. I am not one of those people, but that is the argument that's out there that we're waiting for this bad news because it will signal the Fed's job is done and maybe we can get back to normalcy. That's me in air quotes of Fed's being extraordinarily accommodative. Thoughts about that? Uh, I'll give you a sustained to a point. So right now we've got an unemployment rate below 4%, which is historically and in by all circumstances, for all intents and purposes, tight, overheated, whatever you want to call it. There is such a thing as the frictional unemployment rate. So what you learn about that in a textbook, frankly, is that frictional unemployment is the natural unemployment rate that's there no matter what, even in a healthy economy because people are moving around and there's this why it's called frictional unemployment rate. Usually that rate is somewhere between four and four and a half percent. So that's as an economy what we assume as the comfortable level of unemployment. So that's why I said I'll sustain the argument to a point let's say between four and four and a half percent. So as unemployment rises to 3.9, 4.0, 4.1, probably still okay. People can still make that argument. The issue is, I want to know why it's rising. First of all, is it rising to that because we had a big announcement, big companies in a certain sector laying a bunch of workers off, in which case that's a hit to sentiment and you start to see guilty by association. Once the first big one does it, everybody else is excused and they can start doing it. If that's the case, let's say we jump up to 4%, let's say we jump from 4 to 4.2, you start to make bigger leaps and it's a lot more difficult to stop it at 4.5 than I think we're expecting. So once you get above that, it can go from 4 to 6 in a real quick time frame. And that's where I think the argument falls apart, right? We can make that argument up until about 4.5. And even at 4.5, I think we're uncomfortable. I think the Fed starts to get uncomfortable because there's probably some bad headlines that got us there. But it's very difficult to say, okay, we're at 4.5, stop the bleeding. And that's because it's not the Fed's decision, right? It's company's decision. That's right. 
And it's fascinating you say that, and it's and I'm going to opine for a second. The Fed begged for inflation, and I'm not suggesting they're begging for a higher unemployment rate in the same way. But behind closed doors, that's exactly what they need to see happen. Let's not kid ourselves. The labor market is way too tight in order for them to get things where they want them to be, number one. But they begged for inflation, and I used to say, and I'll say it again, be careful what you wish for because you're going to get it. And the fact that they thought they could somehow control it once they got it to me, was hubris at the highest level. Obviously, they were not able to control inflation. Why do I bring that up? Because again, behind closed doors, they want the unemployment rate to go, to your point, probably about 4.5%. And I even would submit the market might actually like that. But then you get into the economics thing, points of diminishing marginal returns. And to your point, 4.5% is probably that. If we start accelerating through that perceived positive in terms of what it means for Fed and the rates to go lower will turn into a negative when people realize, well, wait a second, this unemployment rate is getting away from us and the economy is slowing and maybe things, maybe bad news is bad news. So be careful what you wish for, Federal Reserve. And by the way, I think the wheels are in motion in the first place in terms of this. I think it's just a matter of time before we start to see exactly what you just talked about, this acceleration and this nonlinear move higher in the unemployment rate. So be careful. And that might be manifesting itself in this University of Michigan uh, survey that's out. The index fell to 63 from 68.1 in September. It was a high of 71.6 in July. Again, I say this all the time, you know, when a consu- when the economy is predicated on people feeling good about things, and therefore spending their money, everything is fine. But when the consumer, for whatever reason, starts to feel like things aren't so good and manifesting itself in this survey, I get it. It's anecdotal. It's one data point. But it's not, it's not something to be taken lightly. As consumer sentiment starts to wane, historically, you start to see the same thing in spending, which theoretically should slow down this economy as well, Liz. Yes. And what you can watch in the sentiment surveys is things like this is sentiment or confidence. The sentiment survey, I believe, skews a little bit more towards inflation. The the consumer confidence survey skews a little bit more towards labor. But you can either one of them doesn't really matter. What's happened since July is the market went down, right? (laughs) July 31st was the local top. As the market goes down, obviously, people are going to feel less excited. They're going to feel less happy. Couple that with a hotter than expected inflation report or inflation ticking back up, and people are going to feel extra less excited. So sentiment follows those two things very closely. Labor has been an unchanged monster in the last couple months. So there's nothing there that's telling people to feel any worse or any better. But if you've got market down, inflation up, people are not going to feel good. Before July, before the end of July, you had market up, inflation down. People felt great. So if you go back and look at what happened to sentiment and confidence during those periods, and remember, these are all backward looking, but during those periods, you're seeing it reaccelerate. And that's when you started to hear these arguments that consumers feel fine, they're going to keep spending, confidence is up. Yes, confidence is up because of what happened for that 30-day period as the market went up and inflation went down. So as soon as that shifted, I don't think it's a surprise that sentiment took a hit. There's also different ways that those surveys are conducted and the questions that they ask. You can go look at the inflation expectations, right? I'm willing to bet that the inflation expectations tick up a little bit and the expectations for one year out tick down a little bit. But these surveys are so fickle. They move so quickly. And also keep in mind, you can go look this up, but I don't expect that anybody reads this kind of stuff like I do. The way that they conduct them, they happen over a week. 
And it literally matters if you ask consumers, if you call everybody on a Monday versus the following Monday, because of what's happened in between. If gas prices have gone up, people are going to be irritated. If gas prices have gone down, they're going to be excited. So the answers you get are very dependent on even the time of the month that survey takes place. A snapshot to your point. And there was a snapshot last week. And again, I'll say this, I was actually surprised at how resilient the market was, understanding that we did sell off. But we had a PPI number last week that I thought, again, I'm trying to be look at it as unbiased as I possibly can, but that number was pretty hot. And I think the CPI was surprisingly hot as well, which speaks to something both you and I have talked about since early summer, that you'd start to see a reacceleration of these inflationary numbers in the fall. Obviously, we started seeing it in September. I think we just saw it again. What are your thoughts in terms of that? Because I think that will continue into year end. And I think part of the problem is energy prices have reaccelerated, all these hostilities. And again, you and I and Dan, we look at it through the lens of the market. We understand the suffering, the human toll. That's not our task, though, to dissect that. But let's talk about the reacceleration of inflation. I I think the most important thing to think about, especially right now as earnings season has really kicked off, is that the reacceleration in PPI is going to be proof of why margins contract. You've got wholesale prices, so PPI measures the wholesale prices, still high, in fact, increasing or surprising to the upside at a time when companies' pricing power is coming down and they cannot pass it through anymore because every consumer knows that inflation has fallen. The growth rate has fallen. So there's not any more justification for companies to say, oh, you know what, what was $5 last month is now $7. They just don't have that that clearance anymore. So if PPI stays high, which it has, you can't pass it through in CPI as much anymore. You're going to see margins contract. And I think that's expected even by bulls. I think bulls expect margins to contract. We still do have a buffer where margins can contract and we're still okay or even above where we were previously. And I think that's what we're hanging on to. There's a chance that we could stay above it, that we could bounce off that little level and and go back up and margins continue to expand. Okay, then everything's hunky-dory and that's fine. I think you and I both don't expect that to be the case. And I would expect that as we get into fourth quarter, we start hearing about fourth quarter earnings or first quarter earnings, that margins have contracted more than people wanted them to. And that's going to be the disappointing factor. So that to me, in the beginning of earnings season is the biggest takeaway uh, of what we're hearing in these CPI and PPI numbers. Historically, and again, these are interesting times, but historically, when you start to see margins move the wrong way or start to contract, how do you combat that? By basically laying people off, right? It's pretty simple equations. I look at margins potentially contracting and say to myself, all right, this is the next logical step to see the unemployment rate start to tick higher, which again, people might say is a good thing. This starts to move again, non-linear way in terms of margins and then subsequently unemployment at a certain point that again, air quotes, perceived good news is going to be bad news. And then further along the potential for inflation and quid pro quo and stuff, I'm reading an article today. United States to tighten curbs on China's access to advanced chip technology. The latest rules aim to refine and close loopholes from curbs announced last October, so a year ago. Biden administration is seeking to strengthen controls on selling graphic chips for artificial intelligence applications and advanced chip making equipment to Chinese firms. Chinese foreign ministry spokesman said on Monday at a regular press briefing that was obviously 
today that her nation opposed, quotes, the U.S. politicizing, instrumentalizing, and weaponizing trade and tech issues. So obviously that's rhetoric, but the rhetoric is being ratcheted up. And we'll talk about Apple in a second. This continued slow motion escalation of deteriorating U.S.-Chinese relations is a problem, in my opinion. And I don't think the market is fully taking that into consideration. We'll talk about Apple, but you know, again, you saw this banning of Apple devices from government employees in China a month or so ago. Yeah, the stock sold off, but it hung in there relatively well. Personally, I think it's just a matter of time before we see some sort of shadow ban, but that's just me. What are your thoughts on this, if it means anything at all? Oh, I think it means a lot. I think, unfortunately, it's a slow-moving beast right now as far as how we're seeing it in the market. And and I worry that it's a slow-moving beast until it becomes a big bomb that comes to us. We've talked about this a little bit before. Some of these stories right now are explained away as, oh, it's idiosyncratic. It's just Apple or it's just whatever. It's just that particular semiconductor company. And that may be true for the time being. But once you add it all up and remember my piece from a few weeks ago called Paper Cuts, it wasn't about this, but this is another example of it. You add it all up and it becomes an issue and wrap into that the inflation that we're having because of some of the stuff that we get from China, because of some of these limitations that have been put on, because of just the relationship being stressed. You've got further inflationary pressures because of that. And all of it together ends up becoming a bigger problem. Right now, it just feels like little pieces here and there that are sort of annoying, but not really affecting anybody all that directly. And also remember, Apple just released a new iPhone, and I believe it was, what, $100 more than the last one. So inflationary pressure is continuing along that vein as well. At some point, people cannot afford this inflation anymore. They cannot afford it in their normal daily lives, and they're going to not be able to afford it in some of this extra stuff that we're seeing from some of these tech companies. We saw an article about, it was a Bloomberg article, but suggesting the iPhone 15 is selling worse in China than its predecessor did in 2022. So you're starting to see, again, some slowdown in China. Okay, people say it's not a big deal, but Apple has become its, and people say you're a hater. I'm not a hater. I point this out because I think it's important. It's become its own asset class. Apple's in over 300 or so ETFs, of which I believe Apple's a top 1515 holding. In the world of passive investing, when money just flows in, Apple wins to that. And I totally get it. But you know, you're talking about a company now that's a value company trading with a valuation of a growth stock. And seven or eight years ago, when it was a growth company, it was trading at a low double digits, like a 12 multiple. When it had the growth, it would be commensurate with the valuation it's trading at now. Something is amiss. You've seen three quarters of decelerating EPS. You have single digits, effectively EPS growth, single digit revenue growth for a company that's trading close to 30 times next year's numbers. And I only bring it up because, again, if China starts to slow the way we're seeing it, And if the consumer becomes strapped here, one has to wonder what happens to Apple, the stock, in the context of, Liz, what it means for the broader market, because it's such a huge sentiment indicator, I think, for the U.S. equity market. You could put probably three names in that bucket, Apple being one of them. I think NVIDIA is another. I would maybe put Tesla in there as well as the sentiment indicators for the market, the things that have survived or the things that I think people just assume only go up. And I talked about this last week about utility players and the idea that some of these stocks are treated like utility players 
all of the big tech stocks have been treated like utility players in the sense that no matter the environment, this is different. This time is different. The market is different. The dependencies are different. So big tech is just going to survive and go on. And it probably will survive. But will it be the winner in every environment that can carry us through even the worst of pain? And I don't think that's going to be the case. So some of this stuff at some point, Guy stuff has to trade on fundamentals. And it's not that I'm saying the fundamentals are bad for some of these companies, but if revenues are coming down and costs are not coming down, margins are going to contract. If you've got inflationary pressures and a consumer that's pulling back, which we have plenty of evidence of, this is going to be painful, right? So at some point, fundamentals have to matter. Valuations will reflect weaker fundamentals, even if just for a period of time. I'm not saying it has to, everything has to fall out of bed. The same way that I'm not saying that we have to have this huge Armageddon-like recession. It may just be below trend growth, but the reality is we haven't seen it yet. And we haven't seen some of the multiple contraction that should reflect the weaker fundamentals in margins, the weaker, probably, expectations that will happen about earnings in 2024. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Are we focused too much or not enough on what's going on, obviously, geopolitically, but specifically through the lens of the energy market? Because obviously, we saw a pretty big move last week. That move seems to be holding in there for now. You're starting to see it manifest itself in some of the underlying stocks. ExxonMobil announced a $60 billion all-stock deal for Pioneer Natural. I mention this only because if Exxon were to think that the energy business was flailing or slowing or di- whatever, 
I'm hard pressed to believe they'd make a deal of that magnitude. They obviously have some visibility into their business to be able to have the confidence to make a move like that. I think it's going to open the door for more M&A in the space. And I don't think people are paying enough attention to what's going on in the energy complex. I would submit crude can stay here for the next couple months. And you're going to see a continued move higher in some of these names, regardless of what happens in the broader market to a certain extent. Thoughts on that? I would agree with that. If you look at things like compare energy to consumer discretionary, it's obvious that consumer discretionary has given a lot back and people are not as excited about the consumer. But you've got an energy market that continues to be stable and strong, despite the fact that oil prices have come down off of their peak that we saw a couple months ago. This is something that I think is going to be interesting for investors, interesting partially because it's such a small portion of the overall index. So if you want to be overexposed to it, it feels extra risky. But I do think that it's a space, particularly on valuations even, that continues to be attractive. So the other thing is, when you talk about M&A, there are two types of M&A. There's strategic M&A and there's financial M&A. If we see strategic M&A in the energy market and in energy stocks, I think that's a positive sign. Financial M&A, we might start seeing, and, it, and this could happen at the same time in different sectors. You might start seeing financial M&A where business Businesses need to be rescued. Things have to happen in order to stay afloat or somebody needs a capital infusion. That's financial M&A. If that starts happening in other sectors, not a good sign. But if in the energy section, you're seeing more opportunistic sort of strategic combinations, then I do think to your point, that's an indication that CEOs and companies in that particular sector have a positive outlook about the market. One thing that I've been watching very closely, and I'm not suggesting anybody trade it at all. It's just for me, it's something you have to have up. But the HYG, the high yield index, which since March And that coincides, by the way, with, as you mentioned earlier, sort of Silicon Valley Bank and stuff. I mean, it's effectively been trading sideways around this sort of 74 and a half, 75 level, hasn't really moved. That changed last week when it went from about 74 or something, and it traded all the way down to a 72, the low 72s. I think it got down to 72.15. Now, people will say, you're kidding me. This is not a move of it. I understand that percentage-wise, it's not a big move. But in the context of what this does historically, it actually is a big move. So I am watching high-yield credit for a myriad of different reasons. I've said for a while, if there's a put in, if there's a Fed put in the S&P, it probably exists somewhere either side of 3,000 or so. And obviously, we're quite a way away from there. The Fed put is in two forms. It's either the unemployment rate trending north of 4.5%, which we discussed earlier, or the credit market starting to show some signs of wear or stress. Thoughts on that? I think they're not mutually exclusive, first of all. If you've got an unemployment rate that starts to march upward, you're going to see stress in the credit market. It's been pretty rock solid as of late until last week. The thing that I think is going to be tricky is that now the Fed has set a precedent that they will intervene in capital markets. They will go out and buy ETFs if they have to because the market fell out of bed or because it stopped. What they'll say is it stopped functioning as it should, and you don't want the world's biggest bond market to stop functioning as it should. So they'll come in and save it, which is what they did uh, in 2020. It's what they've now they've set that precedent. So I think the expectation from investors will be that if it gets really bad, the Fed will just go buy some junk bond ETFs and everything will be okay. That still may be the case. But if that does happen, it's going to make me even more nervous because at some point we can't do that anymore. We don't have the money to do that anymore. And it's all artificially saved, not solved. 
which is what happened with the regional bank crisis as well. So it's just piling on that artificial saving to the economy and to the stress. So high yield is something I would watch very closely. It is not uh, something that I would be touching right now with a 10-foot pole because I do think that there is a real possibility that spreads blow out. And that's another place where if it blows out, it goes so fast you cannot catch it. And be careful. If it's showing right now even little signs of stresses, I would be careful to assume that, oh, this is a buying opportunity. I think this might be just the tip of the iceberg in high yield. Agreed. This week, we got a bunch of, I think, interesting earnings. Tomorrow, we had, before the bell, we have Johnson & Johnson, which is a staple company. Bank of America before the bell is going to be fascinating, given some of the recent articles about them. Goldman Sachs tomorrow as well. Netflix on Wednesday, as well as Tesla. That's going to be required viewing in our world, I would imagine. And I'm just going through it on Friday. Maybe Schlumberger gets interesting in American Express. But in terms of data points this week, I actually think a couple things. I think the Philly Fed on Thursday in the morning is going to be interesting. And maybe housing starts in Beige Book on Wednesday as well. What are your thoughts about the data this week? Well, I'll tell you my thoughts on this week is that I'm going to see one Mr. Jerome Powell speak on Thursday. He's going to have some comments live at the Economic Club of New York. Really? And, and you're going to I be will there? Be in the room. I will be in the room, me and probably hundreds of other people. <laughs> So you exciting. will not hear my voice. <laughs> I don't think he's going to call on me to ask a question, but uh, it will be interesting to hear what he has to say. I do think earnings probably overpower some of the data unless there's really surprising data this week, as earnings should. And this is one of those earnings season where I think fundamentals have to come back into play and we're going to be listening very closely. I do acknowledge that the bank earnings so far have gone well, aside from maybe the commentary that came out <laughs> from somebody like Jamie Dimon, right? But the results have been pretty good. We've talked about that a little bit as well in the sense of, I, d I didn't think that we were going to hear a lot about charge-offs or an increase in loan loss reserves yet this quarter, but I do think we'll start to hear about that in fourth quarter results. I'm seeing a news headline flash, and, and Liz and I do this in the morning, that the SEC approves the iShares Bitcoin spot ETF. I don't want to get bogged down in Bitcoin. I don't, quite frankly, I don't know if it means anything at all. It, we could have been a sort of slow move higher. And when I say higher, Bitcoin really hasn't gone anywhere over the last six months. We seemingly stuck around 27,000, 28,000. I think we're seeing a bounce now on it, but it'll be interesting to see if this bounce above 29,000 can be held. And I'm not looking for you to opine on Bitcoin necessarily, but could this be one of those, this was much anticipated, you get the commensurate bounce and then the market participants lean into it like we see in other situations. What is that called? Buy the, Buy the rumor, sell the Buy fact the, type of yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I never really say that. I don't know. I don't know the right answer to that. I think that there's an entire community that is still pretty hot on crypto. I don't see it as the solution to all of our problems. This could also be an indication of risk appetite right now. We're going to approve a new vehicle to own it in, untested, right? It's an untested way to do this. That could just be an indication that risk appetite is still pretty high in some places of the market. And maybe we'll look back on this and say, oh, that that was the last real big thing that happened in risk before we got a little bit more rational about it. I don't know. I, I think that there are good cases to be made for crypto. I'm not necessarily super pro crypto as a solution. I'm also not anti crypto as a solution. I think it's an interesting thing to talk about an interesting asset class and an innovation in the market that I don't think is going anywhere. But I still think we're really trying to figure out what it's 
what its place is for investors. Bucks look extraordinary in preseason. I like the team they've assembled. The Packers meandering middle of the pack, no pun intended. Obviously, we know what happened to your Brewers, which was unfortunate. That was a quick uh, demise, as Robert Shaw said in uh, the movie Jaws. But it's great having you regardless, Elizabeth. You are the best, as they say. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I guess go Bucks. I don't know. Go Packers too. It's better to be in the middle than at the bottom. But yeah, been, I would. I, so my weeks. pushback with that, and I think you would agree with this, in the NFL, being in the middle is not where you want to be. It's no man's land. You either want to be at the top of the shit pile, pardon me, or you want to be drafting in the top five. The Packers will find themselves in neither of those categories, unfortunately. Yeah, I think you might be right about that. But I am still a Packer fan through and through. I will wear my cheese head and yell at the TV no matter what. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.